0: Is 2016 finally the year during which attacks against mobile devices reach their proverbial tipping point, overshadowing and outnumbering the attacks we see waged against the online channel? Yuri Rivner, co-founder and head of cyber strategy at Biocatch says yes. In fact, according to Biocatch's research fraudsters have waged more attacks against mobile this year than they have against the online channel. And here Yuri explains why this is an interesting trend and why it marks a definitive shift in attackers focus. Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. So, Yuri, everyone is talking about the surge in mobile exploits this year. Could you tell our audience a little bit about what you're seeing, specifically in terms of device malware, remote access attacks, as well as social engineering via mobile devices?
1: Hi, Tracy. Yes, certainly. So I would say that if we think about device uh, malware, mobile device malware, we're seeing more and more uh, overlay attacks. Uh, specifically on Android devices. This means that a rogue application basically waits until you open the target application, for example, mobile banking or maybe a mobile uh, payment application, and then it presents a fake screen that you interact with. Now, you don't notice that you're actually interacting with something that is not the real sort of uh, application, almost like a phishing site that is uh, superimposed on the real application. Uh, the user will just interact with it. Uh, all of their credentials are going to be stolen, sent to the process. It's a very simple and very effective sort of uh, attack. No visual cues that the user can use to actually know that something is happening. I mean, the kind of original scene here is being infected to begin with because you have downloaded some sort of raw application. And, you know, this might happen because you got a, a text message tricking you to do something or because you just went and looked for an application It had some uh, uh, myware inside. So that's something that we're seeing uh, in terms of uh, mirror uh, on the mobile devices. As I said, it's pretty effective and it's the first time that it's widely deployed against uh, financial institutions. Remote access itself is not a new problem, but remote access on the mobile is definitely a new sort of uh, issue. And let's actually understand that it's, uh, it's quite a dangerous sort of uh, attack. I think it was actually made famous because of Pokemon. Before Pokemon Go, was released uh, a couple of days before it was released and everyone was kind of expecting this and waiting for this and you know just waiting for the actual release to happen a specific rogue application masqueraded as the pokemon go uh, app uh, on the uh, google play uh, environment and essentially uh, people that downloaded that application were immediately infected with a full remote access sort of uh, malware or trojan what, what the remote access uh, allows the attacker to do is pretty much anything. They have full control over your device remotely. Uh, let, let's say that they can do whatever, take pictures, videos, track your location, modify your content, delete your content, uh, use your Bluetooth and uh, open any application on your device. And of course, see what you're seeing and, and doing uh, on the uh, mobile app and, and mobile device uh, in real time. Uh, so Basically, full functionality, almost like a help desk that assists you and have full control over the device. But in this case, of course, you don't know that something bad is happening. That's the sort of remote attack that is uh, already uh, used by uh, criminals. The rationale for that is very clear. They do want to take full control over your device. Uh, this way they can uh, just open applications that, are, uh, that exist on your uh, device. They can wait until you open an application and then just you know, piggyback your session. Full control, I think, is pretty uh, straightforward. The interesting thing is that a lot of payment applications trust the device. So essentially, if you come from a trusted device, it's almost like proof that it's you. So they're not going to bother you with anything extra. Sometimes they don't even ask you for extra passwords even if you move money to a new beneficiary, things like that, because you are coming from a trusted device and all of the risk controls are saying that everything is fine. So essentially, once you have remote access on a mobile device, it's almost game over and it's it's a real uh, risk that is already happening on mobile uh, platforms. Social engineering via mobile, so some of it uh, is related also to uh, remote access because it's very easy to trick the user to actually install remote access on a mobile device. You just say, you know here we are from your uh, mobile carrier and uh, we've noticed that you know maybe your speed is bad and when you download a uh, video they get stuck etc we have you know we want to assist you remotely all you have to do is just you know put uh, something like team viewer log me in any sort of remote assistance tool uh, or you know essentially it's a remote desktop tool or a remote remote device tool and on your device so you know just follow this process you know maybe we'll send you a link or maybe you just uh, you know uh, uh, download uh, the application from the App Store and then, you know, give us uh, remote access so we can, or remote assistance uh, mode, to, so we can assist you remotely. Social engineering and remote access, you know, come, uh, come together in many cases. Separately, social engineering can also be used, you know, in many other uh, sort of uh, occasions. Just think about receiving SMS messages or, you know, opening a website that has been compromised and viewing, viewing it on the mobile. The opportunities for social engineering on the mobile are far greater than on the PC because mobile is still a new environment. Uh, Whenever you interact with a new application, whenever there's an update to an existing application, you may have a different user experience. It's much more dynamic than a PC application, and therefore the opportunities for social engineering are still bigger.
0: You touched on this a little bit, Yuri, but perhaps you could expand a bit to what do you attribute so much of this surge? Is it because we've seen this explosion of Android devices that maybe aren't as secure?
1: I actually would go back to the uh, opening remarks that you made, and in 2011, I think, uh, like the entire industry predicted, that you know 2011 would be the year of mobile malware. That's going to be where it will explode. And I think uh, uh, from a technical perspective, it was probably right because the technology was already there, but we haven't seen that, and we haven't seen it uh, ever since. But it is changing now. An example would be one of the banks in uh, Spain that we work with, and essentially the functionality that uh, banks are are allowing now on mobile devices is the same. So same limits to send money transfers to new beneficiaries, the same sort of uh, controls. And essentially, that's the first time that banks are doing this sort of, uh, you know, let's just add the same functionality to the mobile channel that we do for uh, the online channel or, or telephony. So once the frauds figure out that it's the same sort of functionality, but at the same time that the PC uh, channel is more protected, there are more uh, security programs related to the PC, there are more uh, technologies that are uh, guarding the, the uh, online banking uh, from all sorts of uh, perspectives, process, you know, do the math and say, you know, if, if we can do the same sort of product functionality on a mobile banking application, and we can use this sort of malware, uh, let's say overlay, overlay uh, malware, remote access, et cetera, et cetera why don't we just, just do that? Because chances are the mobile channel will be less protected than uh, the online channel. so. I think that it's a matter of uh, definition, because we can't thought that there's going to be a tidal wave as early as 2011, and we didn't see it, and now we're seeing like a turn of the tide, and the reason is that the vulnerability has always been there, the potential of attacking the mobile device has always been there, there's nothing new in these attacks, it's not that now they have some tools that they didn't have uh, five years ago. But now the functionality is there, the business justification is there. And what we're going to see is very, very quickly the entire fraud ecosystem and the dark underground realizing that, you know, now they have to focus on the mobile and, you know, just do the same thing that they've been doing for a long while on the PC environment, just do it uh, on the mobile environment. Mobile, uh, by definition, is not uh, immune to uh, these sort of attacks. And uh, that's why we're seeing this sort of uh, shift of of the time uh, nowadays. And essentially, if I kind of summarize, it's the change of functionality. Now that you can do everything on mobile devices, the attacks will uh, follow.
0: So, Yuri, how can organizations use behavioral biometrics to help mitigate some of these threats?
1: All right. So let's explain what behavioral biometrics are all about. The idea is that when people operate a device, when they hold the device, touch the device, when they scroll or swipe, when they basically interact with the mobile device, they're doing it in a very individual way. Different people just do it in a different way, but very consistently. So everything about the way you hold the device and interact with it uh, is, a set, is a certain a, a set of parameters and characteristics that is associated with you. The idea is to find out, you know, these characteristics and find out, you know, which specific characteristics are very consistent for the individual and also very unique, like the, the characteristics and the parameters that, that you have where you know other people behave in a different way. Once this has been established, uh, essentially it's a kind of a profiling process that takes several sessions, there's a good, robust profile for that specific user. Uh, we call it a cognitive signature for that specific user. And then you can start asking questions about, okay, we see a user uh, connecting now. Is it a regular user inside that account? So essentially, it's all about understanding what is the regular behavior, and then uh, finding out if this uh, specific activity is in line with the baseline of uh, of characteristics and parameters for that specific uh, individual. It's not just you know behavioral biometrics; it's also uh, cognitive uh, attributes. Cognitive attributes is the way you interact with the application. So you know different applications uh, you know operate in a different way, and the way you interact with applications. You, you, you in many cases develop a habit around the way you do it. In terms of you know, the, the way you scroll inside the app- application, the way you correct typos in the application, the way you paste information in the application. Pasting, for example, on, on iPhone, you can uh, leave your finger on the iPhone and then uh, uh, it, it will you know, pop up a question, hey, do you want to paste? Or you can double click on a certain point and it, you know, it will ask you, do you want to paste? There are several ways to do the same thing. And people develop a certain habit around the interaction that they have uh, with the application. So by combining all of that together, there's a way to build a baseline of the regular user uh, behavior. The other thing is also trying to see if there's anything bad in this specific uh, activity that the user is now uh, doing in terms of malware, in terms of remote access. Uh, for example, let's take the, layouts, uh, uh, the overlay attack. The user is now interacting with something that shouldn't be there on the, uh, on the app. And by analyzing what users normally do at that point versus what is now happening, behavioral biometric capability can say that this specific activity, even if we don't know much about the user, is abnormal because the user is interacting almost with a phantom sort of uh, a user interface that is not supposed to be there at that point. That's that's like a a very effective tool against social engineering and overlays and these sort of malware attacks. Uh, In terms of uh, remote access, it's simply different. When someone is controlling the device remotely, their interaction is very different than the regular user interaction, and it's uh, something that the behavioral biometric technology can actually uh, find out. So detecting RATS remote access uh, is very important, and it can be done with behavioral biometrics. The two main characteristics of behavioral biometrics are, are the fact that the other biometrics are continuous. It's not just that you, you know, put your finger, uh, let's say, uh, on a specific point and then you're verified. It's a continuous monitoring of the activity from the time that the application is open until, you know, basically the time that you close the application. Whenever you interact with the application, the monitoring exists. And think about remote access. In many cases, what happens is that you know, let's say that you were tricked to install remote access on your mobile device, the attacker will wait until you log in. Maybe they will actually ask you to log into the specific application. And after you log in, which means you know you pass the initial verification, the initial authentication, which could be, by the way, biometric, it could be fingerprint, it could be face recognition, voice prints, whatever, or it could be just by trusting the device. After that, the remote access attacker begins to uh, operate inside the application, move money, etc., etc., And the idea is that you don't just need to focus on a specific point uh, where, for example, logging is happening or a specific activity is happening, but the entire session end-to-end. And this is one of the capabilities of behavioral biometrics. It allow- allows the application to do continuous uh, authentication. The other thing is frictionless. And that's obviously very important for mobile devices mobile applications. No one wants to make the security very cumbersome and uh, bothersome for users. And behavioral biometrics are completely frictionless. You don't have to do anything specific. You just need to act normally. And if you do, nothing will will happen. If there is someone else operating on the device, then the behavioral biometrics technology will say, hey, this is uh, abnormal. Uh, So the the application, let's say mobile banking, so the bank needs to do something at this point.
0: Yuri, what are some examples of how BioCatch customers are using behavioral biometrics to help counter some of these mobile attacks?
1: So I would say that two types of applications. One is detecting frauds, and this is about uh, detecting the anomalies. Also, criminals behave in a different way than, re- than regular people. So if the behavioral biometric system spots an anomaly, it means that probably it's not the same person that normally uses the application. But then if it also spots some criminal behavior signs, then obviously it's going to be very, very risky, and then this is something that the fraud team, uh, let's say, of, uh, of the bank or the e-commerce company uh, would like to know about. The same applies with, uh, let's say, credit card purchases, uh, using mobile uh, applications, or uh, any kind of payment application. Because again, the system can spot uh, the fact that the criminal activity patterns are present in this specific uh, session. Uh, so, even if the biometric capability cannot profile the, the, the user, let's say, because it's, a, it's the first time that we, uh, we see the user, as an example, uh, spotting the criminal activity will allow the biometric system to say, well, something is, is uh, strange and, and abnormal in this uh, specific activity or, or session. So, fraud detection is definitely one of the you know, specific use cases. The other thing is reducing friction and reducing the amount of alerts, so, for example, think about. A user that comes from a new device. Typically, whenever the user is doing something new, it's a risk. And certainly when the user is coming from a new device, because a lot of the controls are applicable for a specific device. But what happens when you come from a new device? Obviously, it's more risky. But if uh, the behavioral biometrics actually say, hey, Tracy, you're coming from a new device, but it's you, It's, it's basically your same behavior, then... The, the, the let's say the bank if it's mobile banking, the bank can reduce the friction and the amount of additional controls because the user has been verified uh, so they're not going to bother you uh, uh, you know take you through a lot of uh, hoops in order to prove that you're really Tracy and essentially enable you to use that uh, new device because you behave in a, in a normal way I would say that the last thing is just adding more functionality typically mobile banking and any sort of uh, mobile uh, apps there's a constant need to upgrade and add more and more functionality. And there's always a risk management, uh, it's always a risk management decision because you want to add more functionality, but you're concerned about the risk that this might pose. Um, a biometrics allows to do this sort of balance because there's not gonna be any new friction that you, you uh, impose on the users. You can add that uh, additional functionality. Actually, it will mean that there's gonna be more interaction, more sort of uh, opportunity to know if the user is behaving normally. So it's a little bit counter uh, sort of intuitive, but the more functionality you add, you're adding the risk, but you also add more, you know, uh, sort of a better opportunity to um, understand if this is the regular behavior uh, of the user. So that's why adding new functionality is another sort of driver for uh, biocatch customers on the mobile uh, on the mobile front. And and the idea is, you know, once we have a technology that allows us to track the user behavior and tell us, hey, is this the, the right uh, user, we can then uh, use it to add more functionality.
0: Yuri, how is it possible to use your solutions to correlate threat activity across multiple channels, including perhaps the mobile and the online channels?
1: So That's interesting, Tracy, because uh, in many cases, processes do um, you know, use one channel to collect information or do some you know, innocent type activities, like maybe a change of address, a change of email, a change of phone, you know, these sort of things, and then hit the bank, let's say, in a different channel. By observing the uh, online channel, you can protect the mobile channel. By observing the mobile channel, you can vice versa. And we have a lot of examples to substantiate that. I'll take you again to uh, the example of uh, the bank in Spain. So currently, we are detecting e-commerce fraud, uh, by analyzing the online channel because uh, as a preparation to do some you know online shopping fraud with uh, the debit cards uh, of the bank. Uh, they first go and collect some information and uh, you know uh, maybe change some of the information uh, online so it will be easier for them to actually do the e-commerce fraud. Maybe they will uh, even uh, change the uh, address uh, online and then they would uh, call the uh, bank and say that they have lost their credit card and can they get a replacement. They already did the the address change in in a different channel. So essentially, by observing the user behavior and saying, you know what, this sort of activity is not in line with what the user normally does, it basically elevates the uh, risk across all of the channels uh, for that specific user, and this is very, very important for uh, detecting cross-channel fraud.
0: And what about physical biometrics, such as fingerprint, Yuri? We see these increasingly used to secure mobile devices. How can these physical biometrics be used in tandem with behavioral biometrics?
1: I would say that a lot of the behavioral, uh, a lot of the uh, physiological uh, biometrics are a convenient play rather than a security play. If you think about iTouch, you can, you know, unlock your device using the iTouch, uh, if it's an iPhone, for example, but you can also use uh, a password if, if you kind of set it up. So it's more like a convenience play, something that allows you to uh, do it in a frictionless manner, just you know, leave your finger or put your finger on the device, and the device would uh, unlock. So I would say that uh, in many cases, biometrics are a convenience play rather than a security play because they don't force you to actually use the biometrics. When you force someone to actually use biometrics, it means that you have to collect biometrics from everyone, 100% of the users, in order to basically uh, use the biometric factor as, authentication factor and a lot of the people that we talk to and work with haven't gone to that point yet the other thing is that biometrics are typically establishing the fact that it's the user's regular device so they don't actually prove that it's the real person they don't identify the person they would actually identify the device so let's think about the following scenario Tracy has an iPhone and she set up this iTouch uh, fingerprint on the iPhone. Everything is working fine. And whenever the bank, for example, wants to find out whether you know it's Tracy's iPhone, uh, they can use that uh, sort of uh, functionality and verify that it's okay. But now Tracy is, is coming from a, a new device and uh, that device also kind of checks, is it Tracy or is it a fraudster that simply compromised Tracy's iTunes uh, password to go download, you know, the mobile banking application on a different uh, iPhone that they control, and using, you know, the iTunes uh, password for Tracy, just set up a, a fingerprint on that specific uh, iPhone. The, the thing is that because the fingerprint control is on the device, it's a device-centric sort of uh, biometrics. It doesn't really prove that it's Tracy. All it proves is that that device. Okay, is controlled by someone who knows Tracy's password. That's basically what it proves. So there are limits to uh, using the, uh, the, the biometrics. It's not uh, identifying the person, it's actually identifying the, uh, you know, the fact that it's a device that was enabled. And you know, from that point onwards, it can be used as, as a trusted device, but was the initiation of the device okay or not? That's a big uh, sort of issue. So I would say that new device versus existing device is one sort of, you know, interesting uh, perspective around uh, physiological biometrics. The other would be malware, remote access, via social engineering. So, for example, I could trick the user to, let's say, again, go to the uh, mobile banking application, authenticate themselves with uh, their face recognition. Now that they are inside, I can pretty much do anything with it. That's why behavioral biometrics and physiological biometrics, you know, it's not like, The other biometrics would replace uh, the the physiological biometrics, it's more like closing gaps and, you know, working together and uh, supplementing each other. The physiological biometrics are uh, extremely strong, especially when when we talk about uh, the fact that they make sure that the device is consistently used by the same person who did the initial enablement, let's say. That's very, very strong because the fingerprint is left on the device and it can be used time and again. Uh, But the behavioral biometrics, for example, can establish that the initiation process was okay. And the person that actually started to use the application is indeed Tracy. So then it helps binding uh, the the physiological biometrics later on on the device and say, yeah, so we now know it's Tracy. And uh, whenever uh, we're going to check the fingerprint or the voice patterns, whatever is on the device level, that's going to be okay. So it's almost like saying biometrics are typically device level. And the other biometrics are cross-device. It's, it's, it's user-centric versus uh, device-centric. And that's why they're very complementary.
0: And so, Yuri, before we close, let's just expand there a little bit. So are you saying then that when it comes to these threats that we see being waged against physical biometrics, um, that some of the continuous authentication that's used through behavioral biometrics can actually help to mitigate some of those risks, especially when it comes to using a new device versus an existing device?
1: Yes, exactly. So, new device versus existing device is one sort of gap, and again, it has to do with the fact that when you enable a new device, you don't really know it's the real person. That's like one sort of gap. The other gap is the fact that the physiological biometrics are not continuous, and behavioral biometrics are continuous. And there's also the fact that you don't want to overuse the physiological biometrics. You don't want to bother the user too much with physiological biometrics. So you want to, you know, use them in moderation. In many cases would rather use behavioral biometrics which are completely frictionless Uh, and then at the some at a certain point where the risk is high or uh, you know the activity is very very risky then you want to use a physiological biometrics it's it's you know these are two different layers uh, almost and essentially uh, support each other
0: well Yuri I'd like to thank you again for your time today we appreciate it
1: thank you very much
0: again we've just heard from Yuri Rivner of BioCatch for information security media group I'm Tracy Kitten